last winter, I started binge-watching this Netflix documentary, The Making of a Murderer. The premise of the true story documentary is that Stephen Avery was wrongfully convicted of assault and attempted murder in 1985. He served 18 years of a 20-year sentence before being exonerated by DNA evidence. The filmmakers argued that law enforcement officials from Manitowoc County, Wisconsin framed him for an unrelated murder case less than two years after he was freed from the first conviction right as pressure mounted on them for botching evidence in the first case. In other words, they got him again before they could be gotten. Now the crux of the evidence that freed him the first time, it was the DNA that was found at the crime scene. The DNA proved what Avery and a long list of eyewitnesses told the sheriff's department the first time around. Stephen couldn't have been guilty of that crime. There's no way. They all said it. Why not? How do you know? The law enforcement officials asked. Well, because he wasn't there. He was miles away during the time in question, and the DNA we found at the crime scene, it belongs to someone else. Now, that's one way that DNA evidence works. If you weren't present at the time of the crime or the event, there's no way you could have participated. If you were present, well, there's a chance that you did. Now, let's, let's flip it. Instead of talking about a negative, let's discuss something positive. In the same way, you can't participate in something negative if you're not there. You can't participate in a positive either. For instance, I, I didn't win Super Bowl whatever number we're on now. I wasn't there. I didn't graduate from Harvard with honors. I wasn't there. I, I didn't. You get the idea. Now, follow me on a little rabbit trail here. I, I promise that I'll bring it all together before the end of this talk. Notice what we find in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. This is the New International Version. I'm going to read it to you. Paul says, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now that said, I want you to pay attention to who you really are according to that passage. So some of the things that you know I kind of alluded to in the previous talk. I've listed seven attributes right here that uh, really, if you read the show notes, I'll bold print some of these in the scripture text there to where they just kind of jump out to you. Okay, Paul says you're, number one, you're blessed. That's verse three. You're chosen. That's verse four. And he repeats it in verse 11. You're holy and blameless. Verse four. You're predestined. That's verse five and 11. You're redeemed and forgiven. 
verse 9. It's promised to you that your life will work according to a plan that will bring him glory in verse 12. And then finally, you are included in Christ. That's verse 13. Now, that's a pretty solid list, but I want to focus on that final one, that seventh one that I listed, included in Christ. I want to explore what it means to be included in the life of Christ because this is key to understanding who we really are. And if we can grasp that one, all these other promises, all these other monikers of our identity, they all fall into place. Now, let me, let me take you back. I remember when I was growing up in the church, I remember watching people get baptized when I was younger. And I remember thinking, and we were a Baptist church, so we dunked people completely under the water. I would think, what in the world are they doing? And why do we do this? Now, don't get me wrong. The ritual was strangely captivating, yet I was, at the time, not sure what was happening. Well, one day, someone explained it to me. It's like a movie, they said, except that the person being baptized is acting out the movie right there in front of you. Oh, like a human video, I ask. And then I said, but what does this all mean? Well, they replied, it means that you were included in everything Jesus did. Okay, remember like that Ephesians verse that I just read? Right, it means you were included in everything that Jesus did. So the person continued, it's like you were actually there when it all happened the first time, and this is your identification with that. You were there. What? I said that makes no sense. And the guy I was talking to, he paused. He thought about his words a few moments, and then he said this. Well, the word baptism, it comes from the Greek word baptizo. That's important because the New Testament was, for the most part, written in Greek by guys like Paul and Luke and a few others. Baptizo means to submerge or to bury. So we're burying them in the water, I replied. Exactly. Just like they buried Jesus in the tomb. We're burying that person in the water. <laughs> Good thing I don't... Uh, see, I'm holding him down there too long. I said, like three days, that, that would be a disaster. Well, that's the point, he replied. In the same way Jesus arose from the dead on the first Easter morning, that person comes out of the water as a new person. In fact, Romans 6.3 says that we were all baptized into his death so that we could all be raised into his life. Now, the wheels began turning into my head at this point. I knew that that guy could tell. Somehow, all the pieces were coming together in my mind. Like they're buried in water now, the same way they were buried in the grave back then, I ask. And growing up in the church, I had seen, I saw hundreds of baptisms. Somehow, I simply equated those repeating rituals, though, with receiving a diploma after school, or a trophy at the end of a sports season, or a participation ribbon for signing up to join the church. Turns out, though, I was way off. Now, the friend continued, when we baptize people, we're celebrating that the people we all know who have died and been buried in real graves, that they will jump from their graves at someday in the future when Jesus returns. Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. He says the dead in Christ, you know, they come up. And that goes for your great-grandparents and your friends who died too young and people that followed Jesus centuries ago. We're celebrating that death isn't the final word. That's true for me too, I suppose, I concluded. Yeah, it's true. If you die before Jesus comes back, it's totally true. But the bigger point I want you to see is that baptism isn't just a reference to Jesus's past death and resurrection, nor is it a reference just to the future resurrection of all saints. Baptism is a living picture of the reality that happens in you now. The old self is dead and a new self is reborn. 
Now, in that one conversation, I discovered that I typically thought God could fit neatly into my little boxes, uh, tight theological boxes that could contain him in my mind, uh, like something I would always be able to file and then search and understand. And my box was a really, really small box. It was one that I can carry. Now, since that conversation, I've done some more digging on my own, and I found some incredible truths all related to the new self, and the box hasn't gotten bigger. I've really learned that there's not a box at all. And here's, here's what I discovered, and this relates, again, to everything about being included in Christ and that whole DNA evidence thing that we started off with, were you there at the, quote, scene of the event? First, the Bible says, I was crucified with Christ. That is, I was actually there. The definitive death happened to me. When they nailed Jesus to the cross, I transcended time and space, and I got crucified too. That sounds strange. I know, but read it for yourself. It's in multiple places in the scripture. I'm going to give you two examples. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then in Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now second, not only were you and I crucified with Christ, we died with Christ. Now in the old days, no one survived the gruesome Roman executions. The soldiers made sure of it. That's why they went to break Jesus's bones. Uh, if they shattered his knees, he wouldn't be able to pull himself up to stretch his chest and breathe. He'd die. And whereas they'd smash the legs of the two thieves that were crucified with him in order to hasten their deaths, Jesus was already dead, according to John 19, 31 to 33. This was confirmed when one of the soldiers, they pierced his side, puncturing his heart and opening a fountain of blood and water, uh, John 19:34. You and I died with Jesus when he died, according to the scripture. Here's some verses, Colossians 3, 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And here's another one from Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, so let me make a side note here. Let's clarify what killed Jesus because the same thing that killed him is the same thing that killed me and you. It wasn't asphyxiation, that is death by suffocation. Nor was it his stamina, loss of blood, or blunt trauma. No, the Bible says that Jesus commended his spirit after the payment for sin was made. That's in John 19, 28, and in other places. In other words, sin killed Jesus, and sin killed you and me. That's why the scripture clearly reminds us that we've died to sin. That we're now, because of that, dead to it. Romans 6, 2. And it's how we've been set free from the grip of sin, according to Romans 6, 7. Dead people aren't enslaved by sin or anything else. Walk through the graveyard. Nothing has a hold on anybody that's dead. Since we died, we don't have anything holding us either. So look in the show notes. There's a graphic. I'm going to place graphics all through this talk to where you'll see them. The old you is dead and gone because you've been crucified with Christ, died to sin, and then here's the third, they buried me and you with Christ. They didn't leave Jesus or us on the cross. Notice what Paul says. This is in Romans 6, 4, just the first part of the verse. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him in baptism by death. So I'm going to put another graphic in the show notes right after that that shows crucifixion, death, and burial. Fourth, 
we arose with Christ. We didn't remain in the grave any more than Jesus did. Paul tells us plainly that we were buried and that we arose. Now, notice this, this string of verses for you. Again, Romans 6, 4, the second part of the verse, uh, where Paul already wrote, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then there's this in Ephesians 2.5. When we were dead in our trespasses, Christ made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And then Romans 6, 8, and 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, Paul elaborates on the death of Jesus and says he was delivered up for our trespasses. That's, that's our sins. And then he was raised for our justification. This is in Romans 4.25. Now, now notice this. We died because of sin, but we were raised because of justification. Now the word justification, it means that we've received a complete reset of who we are, of who we're designed to be. And the definition carries that concept of just as if I'd never sinned. Now, maybe just a footnote right here uh, that if you remember the previous talk where I talked about Peter and I said so often we identify with that pre-saved version of Peter, with the pre-died-on-the-cross version of Peter, not the post-resurrection Peter. And, and that's where this all starts coming into play about the new identity of who we are and walking and who we're designed to be. The potential's there, but it's when we actualize that event in our life that suddenly all things start clicking. Now, this is really interesting to me because when we're caught in a sin, uh, you and I tend to explain why we did it. That's, that's what I do. We tend to justify why we messed up. But God's justification, it works the other way. Through our death on the cross with Jesus and our subsequent burial and resurrection with him, the Father explains to us why is it if sin never occurred in the first place. In other words, justification is not justification of why you did something wrong. Justification is now justification, certification that things with you are right. So, number one, crucified with Christ. Number two, died with Christ. Number three, buried with Christ. Number four, arose with Christ. Number five, fifth, we ascended with Christ. Living now as if we never sinned is a great gospel, but the message of the gospel goes farther. We've been included in even more. Right now, we simultaneously live here on earth and sit there in the throne room with Jesus at the same time. Let me read you two verses from Ephesians. Ephesians 1.20 and Ephesians 2.6. I'll just read them together as if they're, because that is part of one long, glorious, paragraphs-long sentence that Paul strings together. He says, the father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in heavenly places and he raised us up and seated us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? He raised him up. He seated Jesus at the right hand and then he raised us up with him and then he seated us with him. It's this position that empowers us to live, get this, from victory instead of living for victory. So again, let me give you the sequence of events that the Bible says happened to you, that you were there, that you were present at each, every one 
unlike the wrongful conviction that we discussed at the beginning of this talk. You were present at the crucifixion. You were present at the death. You were present at the burial. You were present at the resurrection. You were present at the ascension. And again, I'm going to put the graphics here just in the show notes where you can look at these. And then I'm going to put a graphic that has each of these events just with their respective verses to where you can just kind of scan and look on the left column and see on the right, here's the verses. So you can look at all of those. And the Bible teaches us this too, that there's going to be more that's going to be seen with Jesus when he returns in glory and that more will be revealed in you because Paul writes this, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him and glory. So there's there's even more. Okay, so Paul says this. He says that in light of the bigger reality of Jesus's work on our behalf, everything that we've been included into, that we should no longer, here's a strange phrase, we should no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.16. Um, I'm going to read the verse. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Here's what he means. We shouldn't value people based on what they look like in their mortal bodies. I mean, how could we? There's obviously so much more going on that we really can't see that's invisible that radically affects that which we did see. Now, people wrongly did this. They regarded Jesus according to the flesh. That, that's his moral body. The flesh isn't good or bad. The flesh is just neutral. It's just your body. People wrongly did this with him. As we saw in a previous talk, they made a slew of assessments about him. They said that he was a prophet that had come back to life. They said that he was demonic. Uh, they said that he had lost his mind, that he was insane. They said he was a half-breed of an Assyrian uh, with a Jewish girl. That They had all kinds of stories. Now, one of the biggest blunders about him, though, was that they assumed that he was being punished by God on the cross for something wrong that he did. They looked at him in the flesh because the scripture says, cursed is anyone who hung on a tree in Deuteronomy. And they said, this is just what Isaiah 53, 4 says, that they wrongly decided that he was being smitten is the word that's used by God. Here's the deal. In the same way the ancients made assessments about Jesus based on his flesh, we wrongly assess ourselves and others based on ours. And think back to that last talk, the previous one. If we were walking with Peter during the days of Jesus, we probably would have noticed the shifty sand more than the rock, right? Yet Jesus calls us and continues calling us to look at the things that are eternal, to the places in each of us where he's already done that greatest work, where he starts and then intends to infuse all of our lives, every bit of reality with that. You see, our physical bodies are simply our containers, they're temples that carry around the spirit beings we truly are, the more real than real versions of ourselves that transcended time and participated in everything that Jesus did. The great reformer, Martin Luther, he taught that Jesus walked among us and lived as a man from birth all the way up to age 33 in order to capture the essence of being a truly alive human, one who lives fully to the glory of God. He says that Jesus lived a lifetime of obedience that neither you nor I have. Then at the cross, he doesn't just give us his death, sacrificing his blood for ours. No, he gives us his life too. That resurrected life, he includes us in that. And he doesn't only gift us the resurrected life, he offers us full credit for all of his obedience that led up to that moment, thereby taking all of our sin on himself in the process. This, Luther concluded, is what Paul meant when he said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
That's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It means that you and I have been included in his life too. Now, in the previous talk, I observed that many Christians, they identify with Peter, with the version of Peter we see in the four Gospels, pre-death, pre-resurrection. But the Peter with whom we need to identify, as I said, is the man we see standing firm in the book of Acts. That's the one that we see after all of this radical inclusion happens. It's the one that we see throughout oh, the prose of his two epistles. And here's something that Peter writes that I want you to see. He's Two points. First, he says that we've been reborn of perfect seed. And number two, because of that, he says that we now partake in the divine nature. Let, let me break that down just briefly. First, Peter says that we've been reborn of a perfect seed. 1 Peter 1.23 describes us as being born again, not of corruptible seed, this is a quote, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Well, how did that happen? Well, the old you, remember, crucified, died, buried. You were included in Christ such that it's a totally new you that's come to life now. And second, Peter adds that you, that me, that we are now partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 says this, And because of his glory and excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. As a Christian, then, you live in the new humanity of Jesus, not the old humanity of Adam. And look at Paul's conclusion in 1 Corinthians 15.48-49. This is the amplified version of the Bible. Now those who are made of the dust are like him who was first made of the dust, earthly-minded. Now remember, just kind of a footnote, uh, Adam was created. He was formed, fashioned from the dust. Now continue the scripture. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. They're heavenly-minded. And just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, so shall we and so let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. So you see, Peter reminds us that we used to be in the line of Adam, a sinner, and now we stand in the line of Jesus. And Paul reminds us of the same thing, that, that yeah, we used to be like one, now we're like the other. And so many people have this confidence even now that the sin image of Adam has carried on generationally, yet people are so hesitant to believe that the grace nature, that the redeemed nature of Jesus continues. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting. Our lives post-resurrection should look completely different than our lives pre-resurrection. And, and now, in this point, I'm not talking about morality or legalism, about the things we do or don't do, that, that we just turn into uh, robotic rule keepers once we become Christians. Rather, I'm referring to the fact that not even Jesus' closest friends recognized him post-resurrection. We'll come back to that in the next talk. For now, here's what I want you to see, is that you have radically been included in Christ. And as I sign off every single time, let me pray that the Lord would bless you, that he would keep you, that he would be gracious to you and make his face a favor to shine upon you, that you would see, sense that you would feel that you have been radically included in Christ, that you can walk in a new identity precisely because the old you has died. It was crucified 
crucified on the cross with him. That the old you was buried. That the old you went into the tomb, but you didn't stay there. That the old tomb arose and came out of the grave. That the old tomb is no longer holding Jesus and no longer holding you because there is a resurrected new you that is walking that simultaneously lives on this earth and as Ephesians 1 and 2 says, is seated with him in the heavenlies. That you've been remade of incorruptible seed. That you are as strong as you were in the line of Adam with this propensity to do wrong, which we all were. That you have an even bigger drive to live the destiny of glory that you've been called to. Grace, peace, until next time. Shalom.